0: Good morning everyone. It's good to be with you. Um, thank you for coming to this uh, second edition of Faith in Plain Sight. Um, we're thrilled to have Carolyn Carpados with us today talking about her time in Ghana and with Marla Dunham um, being the, what are we calling you, the animator, the interviewer, the something cool like that. So, <laughs> Um it's, it's good to have you. I, I love this series. The second year we've done this, it's really important, I think, to um, share our personal stories. I think it's just good for the church, and I'm grateful to Carolyn for, um, for doing that and offering how her story and her faith intersects. So um, I'll go ahead and let us begin. Good morning. Can everybody hear? Okay, great. Uh, I'm Marla Dunham. I think I know most of you, but not all of you. I came to Chapel Hill in 1991 when Bob came to be on the staff at UPC. We bought a lovely home in the South Bridge Subdivision at 114 Braswell Road. The first year, I tried to explain to people where we lived, and after about a year, it dawned on me all I had to say was, next to the Carpino's family. (laughs) And most everybody in Chapel Hill knew that. We were very fortunate to move in next to Ralph, Carolyn, Jonathan, Justin, James, and later the wonderful Louise Arnold, her mom. So we're very grateful for that. Um, I need to say that Carolyn did not want me to say anything by way of introduction to her, so I'm not gonna say much. But I am going to say that she's multi-talented. And she also said I could say she has the gift of gab, which she does. Um, She has been so generous to be willing to share this story with us today about her four months in Ghana. Um, This was quite a journey, and we were able to share uh, in that with her to some extent because she wrote a blog while she was there. So we're grateful she's here, and I know you will enjoy hearing her story. Uh, The process we're going to follow is Carolyn is going to talk, and then at the end of that, um, we're going to break into groups at 10.30 for about 10 minutes for you to reflect on what she said. Hadley Hadley has left these questions up here for you to think about, but you don't necessarily have to talk about any of those. You can talk about whatever you want. At 10.40, we'll get back together, and we will close with a prayer. You may not have time to ask Carolyn all the questions that you want to ask her, but I know she'll be happy to answer any of them anytime, so just let her know later on if you don't get a chance to ask her today. So, Carolyn, my friend, I turn it over to you.
1: Thank you, Marla. I am so glad that you were here to help me. Am I I hearing? Okay to share this story of Faith in Plain Sight. This is a story that some of you have already heard. Okay, there. Is that better? All right, good. I joked with Meg and Hadley last week and now with Jarrett that asking Marla, my dear, dear friend and neighbor of 35 years, might be fatal to this presentation. Um, Marla's heard these stories about Ghana so many times that she is completely excused for dozing off during the presentation there. Forgive her for that. I promised her I would try to keep it kind of lively this morning. My faith in plain sight journey will focus on a time. I spent four months in Accra, uh, Ghana, in 2011. And as all of you know, Ghana is in West Africa. It's um, on the part of Africa that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. And um, it, it, the southern border of the city, of the country, actually, is the Atlantic Ocean, Accra, is a little different than what you might think. I think when we hear about going to Africa, people talk about safaris or being out in rural areas and villages. Accra is actually a city of over 5 million people. It's huge. It's a huge place. So, And where I lived was just north of the equator, so it was hot. <laughs> but the story of how I got to Accra is hard and a little bit long, and parts of it are tough to listen to, but I think it really was was the impetus for this whole journey to Africa. So I want to share a part of it with you. In late April of 2008, some two and a half years before I went to Ghana, Ralphs and Ralph's back there my husband, Ralph and our youngest son was killed very unexpectedly in a hiking accident. Um, He was a senior at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and he was 22 years old at this time. He had two brothers, Justin and Jonathan, twins, who were four years older than he. James was picnicking with a relatively new girlfriend of four months, and they had hiked a long hike in 11 miles into the Horse Pasture River to have a picnic. And um, it was a beautiful, clear, and sunny afternoon in April, and James left their picnic to look at the water. And in a freak accident of life, he slipped off a rock and essentially slipped off the face of the earth at that time, too. We learned after a two-day kind of nightmare of search and rescue that James had fallen from huge rocks, a big boulder he was on. He fell to another boulder below, probably hit his head. We hope he died instantly. But then his body was carried downstream for about two and a half miles, and it ended up in a deep, still water lake down at the bottom of those rugged and fast-moving waters. It was... um, a most unreal thing for us but this is very dynamic and rugged territory there in that mountains. Marla knows that part of the world well and can testify to that so for a short brief while We, James' friends, and um, his professors and teachers at the University of North Carolina at Asheville nursed the hope that he might still be alive. Um, James was a very experienced outdoorsman. He had done knolls. He had done outward bound. He himself was a wilderness first responder. He had Uh, hiked out in Alaska. He had done ice climbing. He was actually a forest wildfire fighter, wildfire forest fighter, and he was headed to um, Montrose, Colorado that summer to serve a second year in the summer as a firefighter, but that alas, was not to be. Our hope was not realized for that. As you can imagine, our family just reeled from James' death, and it was an unfathomable loss to us, but it it was the grace of God that saved us, and God did that through our incredible friends and colleagues in this community, and through a huge network of James and Justin and Jonathan's friends. Dear Bob and Marla, for whom this very building is named, sitting right here in front of us today, were my neighbors for 35 years. I I used to say that my claim to fame was that I lived next door to Bob and Marla Dunham. That's how I identified myself to people. Um, But they led the charge, literally and metaphorically. They held us up. I was not a member of this church at that time. It was in 2008. I was a lapsed Episcopalian on the rolls of Chapel of the Cross across the street. But my mother was a member here. And Bob, God bless him, on the strength of that wonderful relationship with my mother and of his friendship with our family and his friendship with James organized a most amazing and wonderful service. James had died during the week before, it was the last week of classes, right before exams, and so Ralph and I had thought, no, we don't need to do a service now, we'll wait until the fall, but Bob, God bless him, in his wisdom, and Ann Ponder, who was then the Chancellor at University of North Carolina at Asheville, insisted that we have services that we grieve collectively and individually for James. and uh, they were so right and so wise. So we were surrounded for literally months by the gracious souls of UPC who took us in without missing a beat. We were wonderful. I was so reminded when Ann Scaff talked about community last week at the Sunday school session when she said people just came forward. They knew they just knew we needed help to get through the days. And bless their hearts, they came in droves with food, with flowers, with hugs, and, and mostly with willingness to just let us talk and talk and talk about James. I have said this to Bob and Marla and to Meg and Jarrett, too, Um, grief is a heavy mantle to bear it's a hard thing to carry but during that period after James death there were so many prayers coming from people so many good thoughts coming to us that I honestly, when I woke up in the morning, I thought I could reach out and touch it. It felt almost palpable. Talk about faith in plain sight. It was the impact of goodness coming our way that came from that faith that people had. But today, I want to talk about it in a really different way, and that leads me to tell you just a smidge about our boy James. I will not go on long and long. This is just a thumbnail sketch about him. He was a great kid. You would have loved him and he would have loved you too. He was tall. He had 6'4". he's kind of good looking. He um, had a ready smile. He was athletic. He was funny. He was a lot of fun to be with. But the thumbnail sketch is this. He was a kid with a laser-like focus and a real intuitive understanding about the importance of justice, of social justice in this world. Um, The short version of my story is that I decided to go to the university, uh, to Ghana, to Accra because he had done a semester at the University of Ghana when he was a senior at UNCA. It was a semester before he died and he had been there. Um, when he came home, uh, of course we had a thousand questions and wanted to hear his stories. And he was very, very open and sharing them with us. But I asked him, will you go back? And he said, Oh, of course I'll go back, but not to study. I'll go back to work. He said they need people there who can help with things I can do with building buildings, with working on water systems, with infrastructure. He said that's the kind of help they need and that's what I'll go back to do. But it was not to be, because it was that following spring that James died. But the refrain of those Ghana stories stayed with me for all those two and a half years following that. And I resigned from a small law practice that I was in Chapel Hill, and I finally decided, obviously I wasn't knowledgeable enough to do work on building systems or infrastructure or anything like that, but I decided I would go to Ghana and work. So um, let me first say that I had not a clue what this trip was going to be like or what it would end up being. Um, It was not a pilgrimage for James, but I hoped it would be a chance to walk where he had walked and see some of the things that he had seen. So I did what any good middle-class American woman does. I got on Google and Googled volunteer tourism. Well, it turns out there are a ton of places you can pay your money to go and do good work for people, and it's wonderful. But I was particularly interested in Accra, and I was interested in trying to find a place um, where most of the money I paid to them and I was glad and willingly paying that money but I wanted to make sure most of it went actually to the kids where I was going to go to work. I, I decided my knees were holding out. I could get down on the floor and I knew I could work with children even though I couldn't work on water systems or building stuff. So basically I ended up with a place in a crop was called an orphanage and it was run by former Buddhist nuns. Now let me he explained these people were still Buddhist nuns. They were practicing the faith, but they um, were not associated anymore with their temples and their respective countries. So we referred to them as deities and the deities wrote me back and said, sure, come on to Ghana. And where I was going to work was an orphanage where um, about twenty young women lived, the ages 6 through 12. And basically what it is, it was sort of like, um, almost more like a boarding school than an orphanage. The national language of Ghana is English. Everybody there speaks English, and the better English you speak, the better chances you are of getting a good job and being able to work. And so one of the things they did was encourage these kids from the villages who had lost a parent, or in most of my girls' cases, both parents. They lived in villages with relatives, and when they were offered this chance to go to school in Accra, Um, basically they jumped at that chance because it would mean a better life for these girls later on. And the orphanage where I worked, they were clear with me right up front, was going to be in a very poor section of Accra, and I needed to be prepared for that. It was near the Manproby Hospital and the Manprobe Post Office. So these... no one's agreed that I could come, and again, being kind of clueless, I, I went ahead and purchased tickets, got lots of immunizations, and headed off to Ghana. Now, let me say here, people at this church were wonderful. So many people came up to me and said this is such a great thing you're doing. This is wonderful work that you'll be going to help people. And they talked about it in terms of the words charity, and they used the word mission with me. And God bless them. Some of them even offered to send money if it was needed for the girls at the, at the school um, at a later date. But what Bob Dunham said to me right before I left um it upended my sentiments a little bit. He said to me, and I have to repeat these words to you because they were so profound, and with such wisdom and understanding, Bob is looking skeptical, but it is absolutely <laughs> true. I'm a share them with you today. Bob had spent some time in Ghana himself. He had been out not only in the city of Accra, but he had been out in a lot of village areas, and Meg and Jarrett too can all tell us more about Ghana in, in different places than I went. But Bob said to me, you are so blessed to get to go and spend this time with these extraordinary people in this extraordinary place. You will get so much out of this, Carolyn. This kind of experience will profoundly shape you and you'll come home with your heart overflowing. Well, amen. Bob had it absolutely right. I got a million times more than anything I ever did for anybody over there. But it was, it was just an amazing experience. And what Bob was talking about really is faith in plain sight. That's what I was going to see when I got to Ghana. And it was evidence to me in so many ways there. First of all, if you've ever been in third world countries, if you've gone to India, or spent any time in parts of South America or Central America, certain places, or if you've been to Africa, or even if you've been with us to um, Haiti with UPC, you'll understand what I'm saying. For those of you who have never been to a third world country, please, please understand this is not a comment of disrespect. Accra is a beautiful and wonderful place, but huge parts of it, huge parts of it were an absolute dump. Honestly, I grew up in the rural South and thought I understood what poverty looked like, but I was completely unprepared for how poor parts of Ghana were. Places like this are often a very real shock to our first world sensibilities because for the first time we very concretely understand how hard the world is for so many places and so many people. But get past all of that. And you quickly do. It is one of the finest places on the face of this earth. Um, You have to get used to the fact that the Ghanaians are a whole lot more open about their religious beliefs and faith practices than we are. I grew up in a religious family. I have um, gone to church most every Sunday. I've been associated with communities of faith. I prayed every day, usually silently. But I I didn't talk a lot about my faith out with my clients or with my PTA colleagues in gatherings or at dinner with friends. Weeks would go by, and I would never use the word God or grace or Jesus aloud. I just wouldn't talk like that. But there in Ghana, boy, it hits you straight in the face. The first morning I woke up in Ghana, it was shortly after 4 o'clock, and it was the call to prayer from our neighborhood mosque. And so I sat up in bed and thought, oh, that's the call to prayer, and I grew to love that sound. It was the way I woke up every single morning. And then at 4.35, my next-door neighbor, who was a man who lived in a small, small shack next to us, began to clap very rhythmically, bonk bonk, 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 and it went on for some period of time, and that first day I didn't count, but later I did. It was 87 claps, and for four months, Every single day, he never failed to clap, and he clapped 87 times. I finally asked the girls what it was, and they said, they kind of dismissed it, and said, oh, he's from up north. Um, it's their tribal religious practices have clapping in it. That's all he's doing. But it was really very new to me, so I was just like, wow, you know, it's only 4.30 in the morning here. Well, about 5.15, the dees all got up and began their chanting and meditating. So by 730, we were well underway for the day, and um, I was in the face with all kinds of religious practices I didn't know about. The girls and I sat down at a table, a breakfast table, and we prayed um, our Christian prayers, but it was none of this, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies of thy service, amen, none of that kind of grace. We prayed at length about the day ahead, about the things they were we going to encounter in their work about their friends, about who they hoped would eat with them at lunch. We prayed about all of that. It went on for a great long time, and I was very just like, "Oh, well, this is so different than home. I'm not in Kansas anymore." Um, and so, so then I had to line up at eight thirty to start our preschool stuff. Now the preschool was a, a group of kids from the neighborhood again, the very poor neighborhood where we lived. Well, was about 22 of them, ages three to six, and we the first thing we did was we did some calisthenics, we did toe touches and jumping jacks, and then we lined up to enter the classroom. And at that point, we counted to ten, we said the English alphabet aloud, and then we recited the Lord's Prayer. Now I told somebody I wrote home that you have not prayed until you have heard 22 three- to six-year-olds for whom English is the second language try to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us in unison. It was, I I must admit, I loved that part of every day. And then we would sing um, When the Saints Go Marching In, and we marched into the classroom, and then we prayed before snack, we prayed at lunchtime, we prayed before nap. So it was none of this timid. Once a day prayer stuff for us there. It, it, it was just extraordinary and really quite wonderful. Then, when I ventured out into the street, uh, God's name and symbols of God were everywhere. The Lamb of God Beauty Salon was four houses down from us, and it's where I eventually got my hair braided. Uh, the Let's see, Yahweh is Good Computer Cafe was our neighborhood cafe place, but it had intermittent hours, so instead I took the Trotro down to the center of town to go to um, Christ the Almighty computers. Those were better computers. <laughs> There was a Psalm 23 plumbing company in our neighborhood, and also, as I rode into town, the 23rd Psalm Catering Company, and two of my favorites the I Shall Not Die Used Car Company. <laughs> And also a beachside bar that had a big surfboard that had Jesus Loves Cocktails, along with a lot of other imagery on it. So God's... Name was everywhere on signs. It was just it was omnipresent to us as he is. So the way I traveled about Accra was by Trotro or walking. Now you all of you probably know what a Trotro is. It's just essentially an old tricked out van that they had gotten probably cast off from someplace in Europe. Um, that they hold together by string and wire and coat hangers and the ingenuity of the drivers and they cram their private transportation so you cram as many people as you possibly can in and you ride through town for a very very small fee it is not grand transportation but most of them were also decorated with crosses and saints and pictures of Jesus and the bread and wine all sorts of religious symbols, and then usually on the side, a reference to Bible verses. I wrote the John three sixteen in tema most of the time, but there occasionally were ones with very, what to me were obscure references to Micah and Lamentations and Revelations. I had to go home and look up some of those Bible verses because they were not ones that I knew right away. Now, none of this, none of this was in any way meant to be sacrilegious. This was simply an expression of Ghanaian's faith in the ordinary course of business. They believe God is omnipresent and he should be out there right in front in 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 our faces, so to speak. Now, one of the sweetest stories, I need to keep an eye on the time, one of the sweetest stories happened to me at the orphanage where I was. Um, shortly after I got there, I was reading um girls, uh, uh, one girl, little girl, six-year-old, a bedtime story, and she had climbed into my bed, and we had read a couple of stories, and then she said to me at the end of the second book, um, Grandma, they called me Grandma, the girls did, Grandma, do you believe in God? And I said, well, uh," Edna Earl, of course I believe in God. I'm a Christian. And then I thought I would just kind of, to be a little bit playful and shake things up, I said, um... And, Earl, uh, God is so good to us. She is wonderful to us in every possible way. Well, that caused great shock and consternation. And she said, just a minute. And she ran to her bunk and went and got a a chest underneath her bunk, got a Bible story book, and it opened it up to a page in it, and she said, Grandma, I want to show you what God looks like. And it was a picture of a very handsome Ghanaian man. He had that wonderful Ghanaian high bone structure, wide eyes, very handsome. He had long Rastafarian braids uh, all over his head and a giant halo um, emanating in the photograph. And she looked at the book and said, held it up and said, This is God, Grandma and then she turned to the book and said, God, this is grandma <laughs> just like this. And she told me she wanted me to keep that book because she said and this was so wonderful, she said, I think grandma that while you're here in Ghana you're going to see God so I want you to have this so you'll know who he is and I was so touched of course I kept that book beside my bed until the day I left there Um, I never saw that vision of God but boy I sure felt his presence walking beside me every single day I was there in Ghana there is a wonderful wonderful bumper sticker in Ghana and it's in big red letters and I would see on taxis and in the back of um, of, of private automobiles it's a, has big red letters that says Jesus is coming again and then in smaller yellow letters under it it says and I think he's coming to Ghana now talk about faith in plain sight Jesus is coming again and along with the optimism that he's coming back here for us he's going to be here in Ghana with us um, at the time when I was there, 87% of people in Accra called themselves practicing Christians. Not just Christians in name, but practicing Christians. There was a small contingency of Muslims. They're more in the north, but um, Muslims and the communities coexisted really in quite amazing and wonderful fashion. And then a handful of folks that practice tribal um, practices at A religious faith. Presbyterians are big there. Um, It's a mainline Protestant church, and when I was there, 1.7 million people were Presbyterians. I I went to a Presbyterian church service many times while I was there. Um, The seminaries there, Jarrett, Meg, Bob, can all talk about that and tell us more about their wonderful experiences there. but an even more important evidence of faith in plain sight there is the way the Ghanaians practice their faith through so much generosity and kindness. Um, people really were incredibly poor. Um, I lived in a really sketchy part of the city but they relied on each other in a sense of community that is really almost unheard of in the Western world. It was a kindness, a reaching out, a friendliness, a greeting, a checking on each other that I just saw with extraordinary ease and grace from these Ghanaians. They were generous to each other beyond belief, even if they only had... The smallest amount of money and this is not an isolated incident I saw these stories happen over and over again they would give part of what little they had a way to help each other I think because everybody was so poor and I, I found that so heartening I think a time or two I must have evidenced a Bit of surprise on my face when I saw somebody do it, and those those people would very gently and kindly admonish me, um, God wants us to take care of each other. It's our Christian duty, Carolyn, and I would well be reminded of that duty and, and what wonderful, wonderful generosity it was just part of, of the society there. Um, When I first got there, I'll confess, people tried to hustle me in the marketplace. I was, after all, I was a white American with a big pocketbook on my shoulder, and, um, but as soon as they realized i was there i was there to live i was there to be with them i walked their streets with them i rode the tros with them i picked up charcoal just like everybody else to take home and make fires i fetched water with the girls early in the morning hours as soon as they knew that they opened their arms and enthusiastically embraced me i I know that if I had needed one thing while I was there, it would have been found for me in a minute. They were wonderfully, wonderfully hospitable and welcoming people. I have to confess I was something of an oddity. Not because I was white, because they'd seen plenty of white people before. There are lots of tourists, there are expats there, there are lots of young volunteers. I was odd because I was so old. At 63, I was Uh, only a year under the general life expectancy of most people. So they were astounded that I was old and white and um but, but they were wonderful They basically everybody there called me Auntie which is a, a sign of respect a moniker of respect for elderly people and I just loved it I was thrilled to be their auntie I really was and now I've talked too much already but let me I want to close by reading just a short excerpt I wrote a blog while I was there just for my kids so that they would know what was going on and life was there but I wrote this entry about maybe a month after I got home, and I just want to read this. Now I've been home back in the first world for a while now, but there are days when I'm still a little homesick for Ghana. Accra was crowded and noisy and polluted beyond belief. There were open sewer ditches that flowed into the sea There were literally mountains of trash in open spaces, and electricity was intermittent and hot water only attainable over a charcoal fire in the yard. The kids I worked with had all had malaria many times, cholera. There was an outbreak of cholera at the Manproby Hospital while I was there. Can you believe that? I thought it was eradicated. And here, there were people within a mile of me dying from it in 2011. It is not a place for the faint of heart, but still, I am often a little homesick, homesick for the noise and clatter and the boisterous religious music that blares everywhere and the 87 claps each morning. Homesick for a place where hard times may abound, but where there is community with a capital C and virtually no chance for loneliness. Homesick for some of the joy and kindness that I found in the face of unimaginable poverty. And I added a line for today's presentation homesick for the kind of fate that most definitely was in plain sight.
0: Thank you so much, Carol. (laughs) So thank you so much for being here, and I'd like to close us with a prayer. Thank you, God, for Carol and others in their wonderful willingness to share their faith with us. We pray this day for all the children, especially those in Ghana and all over the world who are in need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.